0: Friends, I don't know if you've reflected on it very much, but leadership has fallen on hard times. We're on our third prime minister this year in the UK. Liz Truss's seven week term, the shortest that any British prime minister ever served. Here in Northern Ireland, we have elected a leadership that is reluctant or feels unable to come into a place of service and even in the more trivial level of sport gareth southgate who's achieved so much with the english football team over the years he's going to the world cup wondering whether he'll still be the manager of england in a few weeks time so all around us leadership has fallen on hard times this uncertainty around leadership makes a, a, makes a real impact on us and it has far-reaching consequences. It leaves us wondering who we can trust. When we don't trust those who are in leadership, then we don't follow. We're going to be thinking this morning about leadership as we continue this journey with Moses through this sermon recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. Last Sunday, we noticed quickly how Deuteronomy is split up broadly into three sections. Moses' opening speech, we, we spent about eight weeks working our way through those 11 chapters at the start of Deuteronomy. Now we're in the middle section, a collection of laws, and then finally Moses' final speech in his death. Last week, as I say, we moved into that middle section. Uh, we looked at what Moses had to say about true worship in chapters 12 to 16. And this morning, We're going to be thinking about what God's word might have to say about true leadership in chapters 17 to 20. Chapters 12 to 16 did deal almost exclusively with matters related to worship. Chapters 17 to 20 have a a wider variety of laws present in them. So just flick with me uh, as I show you we'll use the NIV titles beginning there on page 195. These titles, I should tell you, anytime I point them out to you, they're not part of the original text of Scripture. But in this moment, they're signposts that have been added to the texts that, that break the text up for us, and they, they're quite, quite useful just to quickly give us a summary of the content. So if you start at chapter 16, verse 18, you'll see the title, Uh, of that paragraph it deals with judges then the next heading worshiping other gods then at 17 verse 8 the law courts 17 verse 14 is about the king 18 verse 1 is about offerings for priests and levites 18 verse 9 occult practices 18 verse 14 the prophet then cities of refuge witnesses and going to war are the next titles of those 10 headings five of them are explicitly to do with leadership even those sections that aren't specifically about who should be appointed uh, to lead are about how leadership should be exercised They, they deal with cases where leadership will be required and what kind of leadership should be given So although there's a a wider range of material here, hopefully it won't feel like too much of a stretch to look at this section of Deuteronomy under the theme of leadership. Moses identifies four different types of leaders throughout these chapters. In Israel, no single person could hold all of these offices. None of these uh, were given supreme authority over all the others. So you might describe leadership in Israel as a a flat structure with a diversification of leadership on a human level. The one supreme authority in Israel is God himself. Let's take a moment to notice who these four leaders actually are. The, The judge, the king, the priest, and the prophet. We're introduced to the judge there in chapter 16, verse 18, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you. At its most basic level, justice was administered in Israel at a local level by local people elected or appointed for that purpose. We're we're not at this point given a whole lot of detail about how they dispense justice, but the fundamental requirement, verse 18, is that they must judge the people Fairly. In order to judge fairly, they must be careful not to do three things. Verse 19, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality, and do not accept a bribe. They're to follow justice and justice alone. Why should they do that? Well, perhaps by now, after reading Deuteronomy for weeks, we know that the kind of reason that Moses repeatedly gives in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a place where Moses is inviting people to walk in God's ways so that they might find life. Look at verse 20. So that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has giving you. You see, a place where the poor are oppressed, Or where the cruel and the corrupt are allowed to run unchecked? That's a place of death. That's not life for its people. So right in the infancy of this new nation, God is calling those, his people to choose life, to choose fair judges. Folks, one of the great privileges of our Judeo-Christian heritage is that we have a legal system that is designed to maintain the rights of every member of our society. That's not something we should take for granted. We should be enormously grateful that for the vast majority of times, our rules are fair and they're administered for the good of all. So let's pray for our judiciary, pray for members of our congregation who work in the law and who uphold justice in our society. In verse 14 of chapter 17, we're introduced to the second of Israel's leaders, the king. It might seem a bit weird that the king comes second in the list and not first. Turns out that in Israel, the heartbeat of the nation's leadership is this network of local judges. Not not the king seated at a distance in a palace somewhere else. If you know the history of Israel, you'll know actually that Israel survived for a long time without a king before it had one, and without a king after it had kings in place. So we need to be careful not to read this passage as prescriptive. It's not telling us that Israel should have a king. It doesn't command monarchy, but it does allow for it. It's giving guidance for how Israel should manage the reality when it arises, uh, and assuming that Israel will one day appoint a king, God gives his people some guidelines for their well-being. First of all, there are a couple of requirements. Verse 15, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. If the choice of having a king is one that belongs finally to the people, then the choice of the appointment of the king is mine, says the Lord. And we see that in Israel. When the prophets, particularly Samuel, has a role in in choosing and anointing Israel's first kings in Saul and David. Second requirement. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother israelite we need to slow down a second here and check what's going on there's something more going on here than the debate about whether the english football team have been better served by english or foreign managers Uh, there's been a debate raging in english football the last 30 years whether sven and fabio were better than roy and sam and gareth But as I say, there's something much deeper going on here. God's people are forbidden to intermarry with other nations, to make military alliances with other nations, and now to appoint a king from another nation. Why is that? It's because none of these other nations worship the true and living God. This isn't about race, it's about worship and loyalty to God. Don't appoint anyone who king who doesn't love the Lord your God. Remember what we've said earlier in Deuteronomy, what this whole law of God is all about. Jesus summed it up to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Last week, when we were thinking about what it is to choose true worship, We saw the warnings of God's word against religious figures who would lead us away from loving God. This morning, we're being warned against royal or political leaders who lead us away from loving God. Don't appoint anyone king who won't lead you to love God. After a couple of requirements that a person would need to qualify them to be king there are three restrictions for a king who is appointed verse 16 the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them for the Lord has told you you're not to go back that way you came when a king had horses in those days he he wasn't keeping them as pets He wasn't keeping them for a wee bit of show jumping on the weekends. They were a show of military strength. Horses equated with weaponry. Don't accumulate large amounts of weapons. The second restriction, verse 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. If you know your history, you'll know that uh, often in historical times, royal marriages were were made for the purpose of establishing or bolstering political and military alliances a king married a woman from other nations in order to enhance and protect the nation's interests at a global level again this restriction isn't about race this isn't racism it's about worship Don't marry anyone from another nation who doesn't love the Lord your God and who may lead you astray. And a third restriction, verse 17. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. If a king exploits his people in order to garner wealth for himself, that'll be bad for them and ultimately bad for him. Don't do it. Don't allow leaders to accumulate vast amounts of wealth. Let's slow down here for a second. Do do you see how Israel's rules about kingship would have cut across every accepted pattern of kingship of the other nations around them at the time? Actually, I would say it still cuts across accepted patterns Uh, of leadership and celebrity the world in which we live in today weapons wealth and women forbidden sure why else would you be a ruler good question isn't it one that we're still inclined to ask when we come to the question today why would i be a leader what's in it for me why would I take on the extra responsibility? Why would I take on the hassle of leading, with, leading people, dealing with their, their frustrations and their troubles? Political power, personal allure, and financial rewards, well, they might just make that worthwhile. Folks, it's not so in the kingdom of God. Last week, we saw how true worship Can't be all about the person who leads it, the worship worship leader, or the, the person in the pew, the worshiper. It's about him. It's about God. He can be the only object of our worship. This week we'll see that true leadership isn't about me, whoever I am, the leader. It's not even about the people whom I lead and keeping them happy. It's about the leader doing everything they can in their powers to bring the people to a faithful relationship again to God. Talking about kingship in Israel, Chris Wright says, what matters fundamentally is not is whether or not the whole covenant community of Israel will remain wholly loyal to Yahweh, their God. The value of a king is assessed. Solely by the extent to which he'll help or hinder that loyalty. A king is only as good as his spiritual leadership. Friends, this might help you to try and understand what I'm trying to do here. I've come here to continue a work that's begun long before I came or was even born a work of building something here what is it we're building it's not my reputation and it's not ours it's not a fancy set of buildings to memorialize ourselves we're building with living stones men and women Boys and girls who love the Lord their God with all that they are. All of us becoming more like Jesus. That's what leadership here is all about. Moses spells it out for us in verses 18 to 20 how a king should go about exercising good leadership, how they should stay in the place where they ought to be, it's by paying careful attention to the law. God's word is to shape their vision, their decision making, their behavior in every sphere, whether political, administrative, judicial, or military. You want to lead God's people? Well then lead them in God's word. Spend time in god's word yourself let it become the story and the melody line of your life lead the people to want to be in god's word too this is how you lead your people into life let's we've thought a a bit about what it meant to be a king in israel let's pause for a second to see how this worked out in real life maybe you know the story A few centuries after Moses preaches Deuteronomy, they appointed their first king, Saul. He started well, but finished badly. Their second king was David, a man who really did love God, but who also failed a number of times in spectacular ways. And that brings us to Solomon. Let's think for a moment about Solomon in the light of what we're studying here in Deuteronomy. What do you know about Solomon? Well, he's he's very famous for asking God for wisdom. The, The Lord appeared to him in a dream at the very start of his reign, and God asked him, ask for whatever you want of me, and I will give it to you. Wow. Can you imagine being asked that question? what would you say? Anything you want, and you can have it. Solomon's answer shows that at that point in his life, he was very much in tune with the kind of thing that we're studying here this morning. Give your servant, he says, a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this people of yours. He knows that he's not up to the job. He knows that he needs God's help. So in his leadership, he asks for God's wisdom. He wants to pay careful attention to the word of God. He is at that point exactly the kind of king that Israel are looking for. Do you know how the Solomon story plays out? After that brilliant beginning, he goes off the rails and wrecks everything. Last week, we saw a king in Jeroboam who broke all the rules of Deuteronomy about worship. Solomon broke all the rules of Deuteronomy about kingship. What does Solomon do? He accumulates loads of weapons, horses, loads of them. From where? Yes, you've guessed it, from Egypt. He marries 700 wives of royal birth from all sorts of nations around him and he accumulates incredible amounts of wealth. The narrator tells us the entirely predictable outcome. Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord. The early years of Solomon's reign were the high point of the Old Testament people of God within one generation of Solomon, the kingdom has gone to civil war, it's split into northern and southern kingdoms, and is each kingdom ruled by a succession of kings worse than the one before. Folks, kingship in Israel is for the most part a spectacular failure. The whole Old Testament feels like an exercise in frustration. Is there no good leader? is there no one I can follow? Is there no one I could call king? Let's look quickly at the last couple of categories of leadership. Moses turns our attention to the priest in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Actually, if you look at it, he doesn't spend a lot of time here talking about the work of a priest. This this passage has mostly to do with making sure that the priestly tribe of Levi are provided for. for this passage feels like it has uh, the, the remit, feels like the remit of a committee in church house to make sure that ministers and church workers are paid. Look at the prophet, the, the last of our four. Some commentators think That there's a a method in the order here like when you put the judge before the king you're saying that the system of justice has a higher priority than a, a kingly dynasty judge and king must both submit to the law of God as the priest faithfully preaches it but what if all these three forms of leadership go astray as they did in Israel Well, then the last word will be God's word. God has the right to put his last word in the mouth of his prophet. So there we are. We've looked at the four types of leadership and we've learned some things as we've looked at them. What what are we to make of all this? All these laws in Deuteronomy about leadership. Well, as so often, there's, there's rich, rich wisdom here for those who'll heed it, but there's so much more. As I've been reading these passages this week to prepare for preaching this morning, it's felt at times like reading a a handwritten pen from the old, a handwritten letter, I should say, from the old days. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember people used to write to each other? Yeah? And if you got a letter from somebody who was maybe a wee bit posh, a wee bit classy, the paper was nice and thick. Do you remember? And sometimes if you looked at it, it had like a a watermark on it. As I've been reading these passages here in Deuteronomy, it's felt a bit like reading one of those letters. I've been looking at the words, but, but behind the words I see an image. I can see a face. I can see a leader who ticks all these boxes I see Jesus he's the prophet who who spoke God's word a new Moses a greater Moses he was the judge whose every judgment was a stunning blend of truth and grace he was the priest who came to bring us back to God He came not only to to make sacrifices, but he came to, to be the once for all perfect sacrifice as he died on the cross for our sins. And what a king. All his life, he never took a single thing from another person. Even when they tried to persuade him to be their king, he refused. In the end, he did allow them He did allow them to crown him king, do you remember it? It was in the hours before they took him away to crucify him. The Roman soldiers stripped him and they put a red royal robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and pressed it into his head. They put a a staff in his hand like a king's royal scepter and then they kneeled before him to mock him. Hail, King of the Jews. Friends, can I tell you, they mocked him because they thought it was as clear as day that he was no kind of a king. Can I tell you, Jesus Christ was never more regal, never more royal, never more a leader than in that moment. You see, when they'd given him his robe and when they'd put the crown on his head, they did finally enthrone him as they nailed him to a cross. And in that moment, we see God like we've never seen him. We've seen God more himself not less himself than he normally is more himself than ever before this is the revelation of the true nature of God in that moment Jesus Christ was doing precisely the thing that he came to this earth to do to die in our place that we might live he's a king He's a very, very, very different kind of king. You see, his kingship isn't about him. It's a a leadership that that expresses itself in self-giving love and sacrifice for you and for me. His leadership was intended, Jesus' leadership was intended to bring you back to his father God. I didn't know that Amy was going to be talking to the boys and girls about C.S. Lewis this morning, so you'll excuse a bit of Tolkien to finish with. There's a scene I love in uh, one of the first, or the first of the Hobbit films that was made recently. It's midnight. The dwarves are sitting in the dark around a campfire. One of the oldest dwarfs, Balin, is telling the others of Thorin, the the leader of their small group. People are a bit disgruntled. They're doubting his leadership. At this point, Balin is recollecting a particularly intense battle against a quite horrible and terrifying enemy. Balin recounts how the battle was turning against the dwarfs, how Thorin's father, the king of the dwarfs, had been killed. And then ba- Balin describes how at a point when all seemed lost, when, when defeat was inevitable, until with, with an act of quite breathtaking courage and, and of willing self-sacrifice, Thorin Oakenshield takes on this enemy, single-handed. As Balin retells the story, he shares with his friends, those, those dwarfs around that fire this evening, he shares with his friends what he thought of his leader that day. Looking at Thorin, he says, There is one I could follow. There is one I could call king. Friends, we live in a world where leadership has fallen in hard times. And, and it has a deep impact on us. We become cynical and jaded. And, and we, we no longer follow. So long as we walk this earth, leadership will always be broken and frail. But as we look on the life of Jesus Christ, we see finally that there is one leader we can trust. As we look to his cross, we say, there is one I can follow. There is one I could call king. Let's pray. (laughs) Father God, you know how disappointing leadership can be you know how we look to those called to lead us and how they so often and almost inevitably disappoint us Lord those of us who have any degree of leadership know better why that might be because we're all broken sinful and frail people Lord, help us to set our sights on the one whom we can follow. The one who says, come, follow me. The one who says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. Lord, would you help each one of us with our jaded and cynical hearts to look to your beautiful son, who loved us, who gave his life for us, and who longs now to lead us. Let us give our lives to following him.